Welcome back to the Ed Morsey Show podcast. Joining me for the first time, Amber Athey, who is uh, who has been up until now the um, one of the hosts of WMAL's um, uh, Larry O'Connor's show. Uh, Larry is a good friend of mine and uh, is a good friend of Amber's. Um, and Amber was caught making a joke on Twitter. And if we're all going to be condemned for that, then let me be the first to, and I tell bad jokes on Twitter. I mean, I really do. But Amber's, Amber's was kind of a funny joke about, about the, uh, about the vice president's choice of wardrobe. And all of a sudden she has been drummed out of a conservative radio station. Amber, first off, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Amber, I mean, honestly, if you can't make a UPS joke about Kamala Harris's outfit, I mean, what can you do? <laughs> yeah, good question, right? To me, this was one of my more innocuous anodyne jokes. Uh, so the fact that this was the thing that landed me in hot water is frankly quite annoying. I, I've said much edgier things on the air, let alone on my social media accounts. But uh, what, what really happened here is that the left-wing mob didn't really come after me because of the Kamala Harris UPS joke. Because when I first sent that during the State of the Union about her brown suit, there wasn't really a reaction to it. I mean, I got a few hundred likes on the tweet. It was by no means viral. But it was a few days later when I got involved in, in the uh, transgender children debate about whether or not you should have surgical intervention or hormone therapy for minors who think that they're a different gender, that the uh, woke mob got really upset with me and started searching for things to be able to cancel me with. And the Kamala tweet was kind of convenient for them because they were able to very dishonestly claim that the what can Brown do for you remark, uh, which is, of course, the UPS slogan about their uniforms was actually secretly about Kamala's race. Yeah, I mean, the tweet actually mentions the UPS connection, right? The UPS slogan. Yeah. It's It's not like you left out the context for this, right? I mean, the context was there. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, the tweet, if I remember correctly, I can almost recite it verbatim now because of how many times people have asked me <laughs> yeah. about it. But it was, Kamala looks like a UPS employee. What can Brown do for you? Nothing good, apparently. And I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what I'm saying there. The UPS thing is about the brown suit. And then I make a play on the slogan, referencing back to the suit. And then the nothing good apparently is about the fact that I think she's a horrible vice president. It's really not any deeper than that. It certainly wasn't a very complex or clever joke. But I mean, here we are. The thing is, is I've learned over many years, especially working in conservative media, that you are never really safe from cancel mobs. They right. will use and find anything and twist anything they possibly can to shut you up if that's what they really want. And unfortunately, that's what happened here. Well, yeah. And I mean, look, I mean, we were live. I think I was live blogging the State of the Union address, too. And I told a couple of jokes. They weren't good. <laughs> I mean, they weren't good jokes. They never are. No, they never are. <laughs> Not during I mean, the State of the Union. We just throw things out there and see what sticks, you know? Well, okay. So this actually, this... That particular thing leads me to a more serious discussion about this because you were hired by WMAL as one of Larry's co-hosts. So I think you did Wednesday mornings with Larry, right? Wednesday and Thursday. Right. Wednesday and Thursday. And it's a rotating group of of, of three different women, I think, that were uh, Larry's co-hosts. Is that correct? That's correct. It's me, Julie Gunlock, and Patrice Anwuka. And we were all hired on last fall. Right. So you're hired by a conservative radio station, although, you know, also part of Cumulus, which is more of a corporate thing. Um, but you're hired to provide instant commentary and um, what's the right word I'm looking at? Extemporaneous um, entertainment. I mean, this is an entertainment business that we're, I mean, yes. I'm in an entertainment business. You know, some people might say I'm not terribly entertaining, but I mean, that's, you know, taste, but, um, but we're really in an entertainment business. We're also in an information business. We're in an opinion business. It's all of these things wrapped up together. And especially if you're doing live radio, uh, you know, live terrestrial radio, where you're going to have a lot of people listening at the same time, you're hired to do exactly what you were doing with that tweet, right? Is to be snarky, be funny, be entertaining and, and be enlightening. Yes, absolutely. That is what talk radio is all about is sort of poking fun at politicians and trying to have a good time and entertain people. And when you're on the air for however many hours a week, in my case, I was on air for about eight hours. 
you're liable to say something that's going to anger people. It's just, that's just how it is. It's sort of a rite of passage in talk radio that eventually people are not going to like your particular take on a subject, but you can't do that job unless you know that you're going to be protected by your employer in these types of situations. I mean, yes, there are cases where people go too far and they face consequences for that. But if you're just trying to push the envelope a little bit or be interesting or be funny and your joke doesn't always land, you can't work in an environment where you think you're going to be fired at any second because your joke didn't land. That's just not conducive to the to the environment. No, it isn't. And and look, I mean, there's a couple of different ways that we can unpeel this too, Amber. And, and first off, I'm just going to say up front that, you know, I write for Hot Air, which is owned, eventually it's owned by a um, talk radio network, uh, Salem Media Group, um, you know, through Town Hall Media Group. And so I work for a radio network and I, I, I and I understand at will employment too. And so I, I, I'm going to say, look, I understand that Cumulus operates in an at will environment, except to the extent wherever they have contractual obligations that go beyond that. And that it's up to them who they're going to put on the air. All of that being said, you have to understand, first off, you have to understand that this wasn't actually on the air. <laughs> this was a tweet. It, didn't, it wasn't even that you had a joke that landed badly on the air. Um, and and even at that, Amber, I mean, not to say that people's Twitter Twitter accounts are are off limits when it comes to employers, because obviously that wouldn't be the case with, with my employer either. If I said something outrageously offensive, I could expect some consequences for that because it's part of my public persona. But I mean, typically though, even even at that, normally you just get like a couple of days off the air, a week or two suspension. I mean, that's traditionally the talk radio approach. It's just that even if you tell, even if it's something that happens on air, you, you get booted off for a couple of weeks to go off and think about it for a while and then come back. I mean, I, I'm just stunned that this particular thing ended up with you getting literally canceled off of, off of mm -hmm. WMAL's air. There is a host in, I believe it was in California, somewhere in the Pacific Northwest area, um, on a cumulus station who made a joke on air about hanging journalists. I'm actually not even sure if it was a joke. I think he might have been serious. But he received, I think, a one or two week suspension. But I criticize the vice president's outfit and I get fired. It's really bizarre. But I think what's so there's two things that are, I are especially wrong about my particular situation. I think one is that the people who complained are not even listeners of the radio station. Right. And they, they never will be. They actually hate everything that the station is about and would probably gladly get everybody else on the station fired if they could just for the means of destroying this really popular conservative talk radio station. And also the people who came to fire me didn't even offer me the chance to defend myself. This was a case where there was radio silence between the time that people were coming after me on Twitter. And then five days later, when I got the call from corporate that I was being fired, nothing in between, nobody had any sense that this was coming down the line. And I, again, I, I wasn't able to, to even talk to them about the tweet. I think normally how this thing goes is that they'll call you or bring you in and say, hey, what, what was your thinking behind this tweet? You know, we're getting some complaints about it. Can you tell us what went on? Would you be willing to delete it? Would you be willing to apologize? And in this case, I didn't get any of that. It was just, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Nice doing business with you and talk to you never. Yeah. I mean, so there's that, right? There's also the fact that this is a I think, you know, this is something that is, is is clearly driven by a, uh, I don't want to say it's a social panic because I don't think that, I, I think racism exists, but to the extent that you, you can't even tell a joke about somebody's outfit without people claiming that it's racist, that to me has all the underpinnings of a social panic. And it's really up to people who are in responsible positions of power to put an end to that sort of thing rather than encourage it. And I mean, clearly this was a joke about an outfit it had nothing to do with Kamala Harris's race. And even if it did, <laughs> then just tell people th that that was, you know, it, go to you and say, what was going on through your head? Okay. This is the way it was perceived. We think that that was a bad idea. You should probably 
you should probably, you know, offer an apology or something like that, or we're going to take you off of Wednesday's show just to make you know, have you sit and consider things. But I mean, honestly, honestly, it it the impression that I get from this isn't that Cumulus thinks that this was actually a racist tweet or that you're a racist. <laughs> what it what it kind of says to me is that Cumulus is so afraid of people throwing that accusation out that they'd rather fire you than 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 deal with. Uh, deal responsibly with the situation. I think you really hit the nail on the head because I learned from people close to the situation that when they were having internal meetings after this happened, um, because I, and I want to make clear that I think every other host on WMAL came out in my defense, either on the air or on their social media or internally over the past month. Uh, so in these meetings with corporate executives, at one point when the tweet was actually explained to them. They essentially admitted that they didn't really believe that it was racist, but it didn't matter because they were more concerned about this perception of racism. And that's cultivating a really dangerous incentive structure for the left, where if you can just throw out the accusation, regardless of whether it's meritorious or not, and get somebody fired, then they're just going to keep doing it. Right. It's like a child throwing a temper tantrum. If you give them the lollipop or whatever it is, then they learn for the future that this type of behavior gets rewarded. And this is the radio station that had Rush Limbaugh on the air for 20 something years. They have Mark Levin, Ben Shapiro. Everybody on this station has probably been accused of racism at some time or another, because that's just how these people operate. So if you give in every time that's thrown around, you're not going to have anybody left on air in a, a pretty short while. Right. It sets up an incentive structure to create even more of this type of uh, mayhem through uh, slanderous allegations of racism that are just absolutely not fact-based. And yes, everybody everybody who's in this space has had to deal with that accusation, either publicly or privately, more often than we probably care to discuss. I mean, it's just part of the noise. And for Cumulus not to understand that, for WMAL not to understand that, uh, is, I think, extremely disappointing. And and I mean, look, I mean, I've been listening to Larry. Larry's defending you. Larry's a great guy, right? I mean, actually, I'll be honest with you. I'm kind of jealous of you, Amber, because I wouldn't mind sitting sitting in with Larry once a week to to just cut up and have a great time on the air. He's terrific. Yeah. He certainly understands this. And I'm certain that Larry's had to deal with this in the past, too. Um, although I couldn't necessarily throw out an example of this, I, I'm sure he's had to deal with it. And so for those of us who have been through this to see a conservative media outlet cave on this. I mean, it's really disconcerting. There seems to be a really large chasm between the on-air talent and what we're doing on these local stations and the values and perception of the media landscape by the people who are in these executive positions. So I wouldn't even be surprised if the people who made this decision, and I don't even know who they are because they've pretty much refused to tell us who actually made the decision. But I wouldn't be surprised if they've never even listened to more than a couple of minutes of yep. any of the shows on WMAL. Because if they did, they would hear us talking all the time about the perils of cancel culture, about the dangers of giving in to uh, these smear campaigns, and talking about the Virginia parents who were unfairly characterized as domestic terrorists because they were standing up for their kids at school board meetings. The Covington, and the Covington high school kids, Covington exactly. Catholic high school kids. Yeah. There's exactly. so many examples that we've talked about on the air that they are so willfully ignorant of who their listener base is, who their talent is. And I just don't see how you can have a long running successful, uh, programming structure with conservative content if the executives don't understand what we're trying to do on the air. And it seems like they really don't understand that. You know, Amber, I, I was thinking through this thing, you know, because we, we've been chewing over this for now for over a week, right? And it seems to me to be an escalation of something that I saw with Kevin Williamson. Um, and, and in a couple of other contexts too, although I can't think of the specific examples, but I can I do remember the Kevin Williamson thing very clearly. He was he was and now is again a a tremendously talented writer at National Review who got an opportunity to 
move over into the, you know, the so-called mainstream media uh, with a job at the Atlantic, doing the same stuff he was doing at, the, at National Review, presumably for more money. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure Kevin probably was asking for more money and got it, right? Jeffrey Goldberg hired him on to, uh, to write at the Atlantic. And I think he managed to get one po- uh, post article up, one essay up, before the same crowd that went after you went through all of his old tweets, went through all of his old writings and started pulling a bunch of crap up out of context to accuse him of being a racist. And, you know, obviously we covered this quite a bit at the time. And and I said, basically, the lesson here is if you've got a good job in conservative media, <laughs> keep it because yeah. moving over, moving over to a, a non-conservative platform is a risk that you can't run while these um, publishers act like cowards. Um, I mean, it wasn't even anything that that Kevin had written for The Atlantic that they were going after. It was stuff that he'd written years ago that, again, they took out of context, just like they're doing with you. And now, I mean, now I look at what happened with you and I'm thinking, you know, if you've got a good job at a conservative media outlet, don't even go to another conservative media <laughs> outlet. Stick with it. You know, the grass is yeah, not greener. Yeah, I mean, right? I, I thought I was safe. Uh, luckily, uh, it was a part-time job in my case, so I'm still able to pay my bills and all that good stuff thanks to The Spectator. Uh, but, I mean, I, and I have, I've had people at WML say to me, like, I'm sorry that we even brought you into this because we never thought that something like this would happen. Yeah. And it really undermines the basic integrity of the station, any of the conservative stations really that are underneath that cumulus umbrella, because there could be a chilling effect from this among the hosts if they don't feel comfortable sharing their views on air. Uh, that's or a disservice Twitter. to the listeners or even on Twitter. I mean, all around it, it really creates this bad environment um, that, again, I just, I, to me, it threatens the future of, of, the stations that are under cumulus because their hosts have to feel like they're going to be protected by their employers. And and clearly they're not. Well, and I think that, you know, at least to some extent, it it's probably going to affect cumulus's ability to attract talent. Mm-hmm. Um, which point I would like to also once again, throw in a, a completely unrelated, um, but, uh, but um, uh, enthusiastic plug for Salem media group. Uh, uh- <laughs> <laughs> If you got talent, come to Salem Media Group. We don't do that to, you know, I'm, I'm only partly joking. <clears throat> Thanks, boss. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, honestly, I mean, I've been with Salem for, what is it, going on 12 years, 12 and a half years at this point. Um, and I, I've never seen anything like that. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. certainly we've made comments where we, we, it's sort of like, um, you sure you wanted to do that? Is that, are you sure that's what you wanted to say? And maybe you guys need to go back and rethink that. That's happened. I, I could count on one hand how many times that's actually happened. Um, I don't think I've ever seen anybody um, just get flat out fired over a tweet that they sent. Um, and I'm, I'm just stunned. I'm really just stunned that a, a conservative uh, a, a media outlet that's oriented to conservatives and especially oriented to attracting conservative talent um, would do something like this because it is, it, it really is, it should at least send a signal to uh, people who could be, who could perhaps give benefit to cumulus, uh, to cumulus and WMAL and, uh, and other stations there. It, it's got to send a, a, a chilling signal to that. And I, I, Again, I mean, I'm I have no desire to go anywhere anyway, but I think if Cumulus was to say, "Hey, would you like to do this?" Like, not really. No, <laughs> I don't really want to waste <laughs> yeah, my I'll pass. I, I, I don't really want to waste my time with you because you yeah. have proven yourself to be uh, just completely pusillanimous when it comes to any sort of criticism. And believe me, I'm going to get criticism. Um, yeah, and what's what's sad too is this is not my first gig with Cumulus per se. I mean, I've been guest hosting on MAL for about three years now. I used to fill in on the morning show pretty frequently for Mary Walter when she was on vacation or just out of office and would do that at least 10 times a year. So it's not like I was some unknown that just kind of waltzed in and 
should have been considered disposable. I had built a relationship with a lot of people who work at that station and like to think that I was pretty well regarded. My performance had received nothing but good reviews. And then as soon as I finally get officially hired on, I, I'm thrown under the bus and, and betrayed in a way. And I would imagine that some conservatives that work there probably feel a bit like they're being taken advantage of as the CEO of Cumulus makes millions of dollars a year on the backs of their talent, but has no use for the things that they believe in or their values or the ideas that actually earn that money because the listeners so desperately want to hear it. Or just basic fairness. No commitment yeah. to basic fairness. I mean, that's, I mean, it's, that's certainly part of the story too. Basic fairness would say we have a valued employee, somebody that we've, that we valued so much that we're actually paying this person to provide us content. Um, and the first time we get somebody who's complaining about a tweet, we're just going to toss her into the trash. I mean, I, I don't know what that says about management over there, but it ain't anything good. good. Yeah. Well, and I will tell you too, Cumulus in terms of the, the corporate values that they espouse is really big on this idea of diversity and inclusion. And one of the reasons that the O'Connor and Company show was structured the way that it was with the three rotating female guest hosts is they wanted to have a diversity of perspectives. So yep. we have um, like a middle-aged mom, a younger mom, and then myself who is unmarried and doesn't have any kids, but all conservative. But we were all able to provide these different unique perspectives from living in the area for a long time. We're all local and working in conservative media for a number of years. And yet the the only, one of the only women, I think we're the only three women on the MLA, MAL station gets fired for critiquing another woman's outfit. It just feels so backwards to everything that we were told in the various trainings that we received during the onboarding process, as well as a lot of the messaging about the O'Connor and Company program. Yeah, which is, you know, <clears throat> Larry is irreverent. He's snarky. He's witty. He's funny. It's all those things. And <clears throat> yeah, I, I, and again, Larry's a friend of mine, so I'm going to, I'm going to talk really nicely about Larry, but, um, you should, <laughs> I should, right. Exactly. And, yeah. and, um, yeah, I mean, Amber, I, I, the only thing, I guess the only, what it comes down to is a, I'm sorry you're going through this because B, it really sucks. And C, this is not any sort of just outcome. Even if you somehow had crossed a line as, as somebody who worked in the corporate world as a manager and director for almost 20 years prior to doing this for a living. This is not the way that you handle employees. This is not the way that you deal with uh, employee issues at all, period, end of story. And I worked in customer service where, believe me, I got complaints that were a whole lot more, <laughs> were a whole lot more problematic <laughs> than, just a, than just a tweet out in the wind, right? Um, mm -hmm. And you just don't deal with, with people who you are hiring and, 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 and training and promoting in that sense. It's just, it's a terrible way to be treated. Um, but you are at spectator.org. We should talk a little bit just here at the end about what you are doing these days and where people can find more of uh, what you're doing. Definitely. Well, I'm certainly keeping busy. That's the good news. And if anything, they did me a favor, at least in the short term, because I have a couple of projects I've been working on that I'm happy to have the eight extra hours a week to get finished. So ironically enough, about six months ago, I started writing this book tentatively titled The Snowflakes Revolt about <laughs> the woke takeover of corporate media. <laughs> and here we are. So I'm, I'm going to be adding a chapter to that. Obviously, I've been doing some pretty interesting research on some of the political leanings and donations of the various executives at Cumulus Media that I'll be including in the book. That should be out hopefully by late fall early winter, certainly in time for the holiday season. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Um, you mentioned the spectator. They can, uh, listeners can go to spectatorworld.com and use my promo code Amber for a 10% discount. We should reward them because they were kind enough to not only not fire me, but they actually laughed at the few emails that they received and promptly deleted them and thought the whole thing was ridiculous. And I'm also kind of toying with the idea of doing my own independent project on the side, uh, something maybe podcasting, some type of 
YouTube channel type type thing. We'll see. I, I, I'll have more of an official announcement coming in the next couple of weeks, but um, just so everyone knows, I, I have a lot of things that I'm working on and, and I'm going to be just fine. Well, good, because I think it will be, um, you know, success is the best revenge, right? Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I'm not sure who first said that, but I'll just say it right now. Success is the best revenge. <laughs> And success uh, is the best revenge, Ed Morsey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right underneath it. Um, and and I think that um, as as you're going along and succeeding, this is going to be sort of a laughable little footnote about petty little bureaucrats who <laughs> really just needed to find their gonads and missed the opportunity to do so. Uh, thankfully, Spectator actually um, handled this. Uh, and so, you know, big salute to the Spectator for handling this the way it should have been handled. And, um, again, I guess my, I guess my advice to everybody is if you're, if you've got a good job at a conservative media outlet, that's got your back, stick to it or come to Salem either way. It's, uh, (laughs) Amber, thank you so much for being with us and thanks for, you know, um, you know, demonstrating your, your sense of humor, your wit, your perspective on this. I, I, I know I don't want to make it seem like we're making light of your situation because again, I think it sucks. Um, and you know, I'm not usually an angry guy, but this really did kind of tick me off quite a bit. And, um, I appreciate the fact that you're willing to come on here and, and tackle it this way and be as positive as you are. And I know that you're just going to have great things going on for you from this point forward. Oh, thank you so much. Ed. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I've had time to stew on this, like you said, and, and I've, I've been so, uh, I've been made so optimistic by all of the support that I received over the past week and, and some of the, the people who've reached out to me. So I'm going to take this as an opportunity more than anything else. It's, and all you can do is laugh at situations like this. Otherwise you'll be miserable. And that's what the people on the other side want. So can't, that's, can't let them win. That's it. Exactly. Success is the best revenge said Ed Morris. Yes. <laughs> You're uh, a sage. <laughs> all right, Amber, thank you so much for being with us. Stay tuned folks. We're going to be back with more from the Ed Morris show. This is Ed Morris of hotair.com for town hall. Forget the red wave in the midterms. If two new polls are correct, Democrats had better prepare for an electoral tsunami, the likes of which have not been seen in at least a dozen years. Joe Biden's collapse over the last several months, coupled with record numbers on inflation, have done significant damage to his own standing. His job approval ratings now hover around 40%, but Biden does worse when voters rate his performance on the issues. A CBS poll finds that 60% or more disapprove of Biden's performance on four of five issues that matter most to midterm voters, the overall economy, inflation, crime, and immigration. That has consequences beyond policy. A new ABC poll shows that 55% of GOP voters describe themselves as very enthusiastic about voting in the midterms. Only 35% of Democrats express that high level of enthusiasm, a 20-point gap that signals a despondent Biden base and a massive turnout advantage for Republicans. Yes, the polls are effectively a tsunami warning. I'm Ed Morrissey. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining us as always on Tuesdays, the prince of Twitter, the regent of redstate.com, my friend and yours, Andrew Malcolm at A.H. Malcolm on the Twitter. And of course, over at redstate.com slash author slash Andrew Malcolm all run together there. Andrew, welcome back. Thank you, sir. It's good to be back. It's not uh, it's not uh, a regular week without you. And I was so screwed up the week you took off. I was like, well, when is Tuesday? You mean when I was gold bricking? Yes. Yes. The gold bricking with family. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that gold bricking. I'm not I'm not apologizing in the least for my gold bricking. I, I enjoyed that too much. Uh, but I am happy to be back and, of course, happy to be doing this. And uh, lots of stuff to discuss today. Um, we've got a great... Um, we got a great uh, VIP uh, post over at redstate.com to discuss, which is it's going to lead us into a couple other discussions. So why don't we start with that first? I mean, one of the big surprises this weekend was that um, was that video of Boris Johnson walking with Volodymyr Zelensky through the streets of Kiev. Um, and I mean, it was really touching. You, you saw Boris Johnson get into a conversation with, I think, a local shop owner and um I, I think that the guy was just really so happy to see Boris Johnson out there that the, 
conversation kind of kept continuing when it was clear that Zelensky wanted to move, you know, wanted to keep moving on. But uh, I mean, that's a remarkable uh, yeah. demonstration of leadership there. Yeah, I don't, I don't care if Boris Johnson had um, hidden ulterior political motives to boost his standing back home. It takes a great deal of courage to go into a war-torn capital and walk on the streets. Now, as I said in the in the post, uh, their entourage was amply armed, but uh, the M16s or whatever they were don't do anything against artillery shells. So uh, it it took some courage to do that. And uh, her, um, or Johnson yeah. later t- later tweeted that the Ukrainians have the heart of a lion. Um, and he sort of did, too, and called attention to it by a surprise visit, unannounced, I guess it should be. It wasn't a surprise for Ukrainians. but um, And he came bearing arms and uh, some more arms and armored vehicles and personnel uh, protection gear and I guess some, uh, some drones uh, with precision-guided weapons. So uh welcome on both counts uh by the ukrainian president uh, you know he's been very savvy zelensky uh in his yep. public communications mode first of all he speaks english i don't think many americans have the patience to go through translations uh a lot but uh he addressed congress he addressed parliament he addressed the european commission um and and numerous others and he's invited foreign leaders to come and of course that attracts attention to kiev and their problems and gives him a chance to appeal for more help um very savvy and very open especially in contrast to uh vladimir putin the hungered down in the kremlin firing generals who haven't done the right stuff in his mind well, it is. I mean, first off, it's always uh, it's always sort of a stirring display of leadership when you have that sort of defiant, um, I don't know, uh, underdog. Yeah, well, uh, the underdog, right? And in, in, in that sort of photo op, I don't want to just call it a photo op because it's much more than that. When you have your, I mean, this is Winston Churchill used to do this during World yeah. War II during the Blitz. He would go out and and mingle amongst the crowds, and what it, what that tells you. Is that the leadership? And I'd even extend that to King George the Sixth and his family, who refused to leave London, even though the government actually wanted them to relocate. And I think there was actually two responses to that: was one, the Germans weren't very good at precision bombing, and they were they were bombing other places. So I mean, it was it would have been a, a stretch to figure out where they could go, where they would have been absolutely safe anyway. But George wanted to be in amongst his people as a demonstration of solidarity with them. And, and Churchill the same. He um, would would go out and and mix with um, uh, average ordinary Britons in order to keep their morale up. And, and, and Elizabeth was an ambulance driver. Elizabeth was an ambulance driver. I mean, these were all very risky um, steps to take, but they didn't flee. And when you have a uh, when you have a, a head of state, well, I should say head of government, uh, Boris Johnson technically isn't head of state. That's Queen Elizabeth, uh, who's certainly not going to go to Ukraine, who certainly shouldn't go to Ukraine at 95 yeah. years, 95, 96, 97. She doesn't need to go to Ukraine. Boris Johnson could go to Ukraine. Um, but um, I mean, that that is a tremendous shot in the arm. And, and, and you're starting to see people from uh, the religious world doing this. I was just retweeting something with kind of a joke. Uh, you know, if Jeff Dennis is watching this. I... I I threw in a joke uh, with, with Jeff, but Christopher Lamb, who uh, writes for um, the Tablet, which is a uh, is a Catholic universe sort of media uh, publication, uh, Christopher Lamb was tweeting out uh, earlier today: faith leaders, including uh, Lord Rowan Williams, who used to be Archbishop of Canterbury, he's now retired, Grand Imam Yahya uh, Palavicini. Brother Massimo Fusarelli and Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg will visit Ukraine tomorrow on 12 April, right? And my joke on that was, uh, a minister, an imam, a monk, and a rabbi walk into a Ukrainian coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> I would have said bar, but, you know, imams don't walk into bars, yeah, so I didn't want to, yeah. yeah, I don't want to insult yeah. them. But, well, uh, uh, I, I, I'm not sure you want to announce when you're going to be somewhere in a war zone, but 
it's uh, that's a great idea. And it, it inspires courage for Ukrainians. It inspires help, uh, feeds their underdog, a scrappy underdog image. And then today we get word that I guess some 10,000 have died in, uh, in Mariupol. Yeah. And, uh, and, that's, and that's, that's, that's a very, very conservative estimate. It's probably going to be much higher than 10,000. Jeez. Um, so, you know, I, and, and as I pointed out in my post on Sunday, VIP, uh, Biden was once again um, taking a break in Delaware. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying the president needs to go there. Presidents go to war zones often uh, or regularly, I should say, but they're always uh, where American troops are deployed. And although he intimated that American troops had been in Ukraine, uh, the official line is that they haven't. I'd be very surprised, honestly, if the CIA or the Pentagon doesn't have guys on the ground, maybe in civvies, uh, studying Russian equipment and gear and tactics. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, they got to be doing that. Um, but uh, we're not not doing the fighting yet, as far as I can tell. So. Well, I don't uh, think we will be either, but I mean, uh, no, I, I mean, was it eight months after he uh, fled Afghanistan? Uh, in such a chaotic way, I, I'm not sure any American wants him to get involved in militarily anywhere. Right. I know. I, I certainly don't think it'd be a good idea for us to get militarily involved in, in Ukraine for lots of reasons. I mean, lots of military reasons. We first off, our our um, supply lines would be really far extended. Second off, of course, it would touch off a wider war, which you don't really want. It would probably touch off a naval war, which you really don't need while we're trying to keep China in check. Um, but you know, of course, the way that Putin's military is performing, it may not be much of a war. As long as nuclear weapons don't get thrown, it might not be much of a war. And that kind of brings me around to another development on this front, too. I mean, you have Boris Johnson, and, and again, you got a great VIP column on Boris Johnson's visit. I want to get to why Biden hasn't been there in just a moment, but before we get there, um, Today, we're, we're, well, really over the last few days, we're learning that Sweden and Finland are about to jettison eight decades of official neutrality and throw in with NATO on the basis of what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And I mean, if you take a look at what Russia has been doing in Georgia and what it was doing in Ukraine eight years ago, you kind of wonder why it's taking this long. Yeah. Um, but at, at any rate, I mean, this is a huge backfire for Putin. I mean, the whole idea of invading Ukraine and taking it over was to was to maintain a, a big buffer between uh, NATO and yeah. Russia. And now you're going to have an 850 mile border with Finland. That's going to be all NATO, just about 100 miles away from St. Petersburg, maybe about 150 miles away from their big naval base at Murmansk. I mean, that's that's a disaster for Russia. And there's really not much they can do about it at the moment either. No. Uh, well, he, I guess he was blustering today, but uh, no, you're right. They can't. Um, although they tried in Finland before, right? Or the Germans did. Well, no, no, no. The Russians did too. I mean, the Russians yeah. The Russians had a war with Finland. I think it was in 1940 and got their ass kicked. That's where the, um, that's where the phrase um, Molotov cocktail first originated. The, Is that right? Yeah. The Finns yeah. figured out how to attack Russian tanks. They waited until they went past and they threw gasoline filled bottles at the tanks and it would penetrate and 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 disable the tanks and kill the people in them and they started calling them molotov cocktails because of the foreign foreign minister I because think of the foreign was. minister right the foreign minister at the time uh, you know I, I mean the russians ended up controlling a a pretty good chunk of finland after that but i mean it was a disaster for the russians and um and the Finns have ever since um had, I mean, one reason that we haven't pressed Finland so much about NATO membership is because the Finns are sort of fanatics about self-defense. They they have uh, compulsory national service. They have people – you have to qualify on a regular basis uh, to to fire weapons, which will, which would be used against, you know, ground force incursions. They're, they're, they're pretty serious about this stuff. In fact – at the beginning of the Ukrainian conflict, people were saying, you know, the Ukrainians had just kind of started to 
orient themselves to that when Russia invaded. And they said, you know, this is something you probably should have been doing since 2014 in order, in order to be prepared. And as it turns out, the Ukrainians were a hell of a lot more prepared than we thought they were. But fin, the Finns have been doing this for 80 years. And yeah, um, yeah. yeah I mean, so throwing yeah, Americans, in- Americans forget this. You know, we've been yeah. fortunately isolated and, and we had ships uh, sunk and blown up and burning just off the coast during World War II. But um, and we had, I guess, the Japanese had a balloon bomb that set a forest fire and killed a kid in in Oregon. But uh, we've been blessedly safe from foreign incursions. And I think that gives a false sense of security. Uh, you know, there was a Gallup poll out this weekend saying that Americans for a long time had thought that uh, the defense spending was just about right. And now it's like 70 percent think we should be investing more in in defense uh and that russia is now a threat which <laughs> mitt romney warned us about in 2012 and right and and obama blew off uh so uh, that's uh naive obama and of course biden was part of that administration so right right by the way uh, i think you're forgetting um that you know russia invaded the u.s in 1984 in red dawn and then North Korea oh, did true. North Korea did it again, I think, in 2010 in, in the remake of Red Dawn. So, you know, it's yeah. not that we're completely. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's Wolverines. true. But, but fortunately, we had Seth Rogen on uh, on guard. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Uh, and he's he, he saved us all. Um, all right. Now, in your in, <laughs> I mean. Why would why would we not want to have fun in these podcasts, Andrew? We just no, we, have, we wouldn't. We of course, so, we wouldn't. We have so much fun with this stuff. That's right. That's right. Uh, despite the fact that you are a doer, boring person. Well, <laughs> well, this is Waldorf and Statler. All right, old man. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. This is Waldorf and Statler. Uh, our, our our normal routine. Um, all right. Um, you mentioned Joe Biden not going to Ukraine and the White House today <laughs> reconfirmed that Joe Biden has no plans to visit Ukraine. Now, they probably wouldn't say if he did. Before the same yeah, reason you not. just mentioned is that, you know, you you do those things unannounced because of security issues. But I don't th- I think everybody would be a little surprised to see Joe Biden walking around the streets of uh, Kiev. And I think that there's a good reason for that. But it also speaks to the problem that Joe Biden is. And I think the good reason for that is that you really don't want to put a 78-year-old man in the middle of that situation when he doesn't have to be. It's a, it's a, so, Queen, Elizabeth, it's a Queen Elizabeth thing, right? Uh, no, of course not. And he might do or say something. You know, when he met with the U.S. troops, he could have met with refugees, maybe, uh, which would have been somewhat more touching. But he met with the safe 82nd Airborne guys. And he said, you know, when you get in Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. And of course, they're, according to the administration, um, U.S. troops are not going uh, are not going in. But Biden may have been thinking, not thinking about a security risk that there are some there uh, right. anyway, clandestinely. But uh no, no, you don't want him there. He could have gone closer. He was 500 miles from Kiev uh, in Warsaw. Uh, and I say this not being a, a Secret Service agent, um, but um, uh, who are they're great guys, by the way. Um, and um, I think collectively they are more inclined towards Republicans, but they never talk. Right. They never talk politics publicly. Um I have a friend in the Secret Service, and actually, I guess they loved Michelle Obama because uh, she took very, very good care of the detail covering her kids in school. Yeah, which would have been a very boring detail, but uh, um, so yeah, they do have. Uh, I did I share a little Romney Secret Service uh, story? I think I may have told this before. The 2012 uh, foreign policy debate was in Denver. And uh, so uh, my friend was on the, was on the detail and they delivered safely Romney and Ann back to the hotel, whatever it was in Denver. And then they went to the uh, back to their car. I guess it's SUV to get uh, what they call the sticks, which are machine guns uh, out of the back. And as they're collecting the 
they're not as big as body bags, but they're like body bags as they're collecting the sticks. They hear this very familiar voice behind them saying, can I give you a hand? <laughs> and they turn around and it's Romney. <laughs> and he said, sir, you're supposed to be inside with that, with that, with that detail. He said, no, no, I wanted to help you out. You guys have been so kind. And he said, no, no, no. And so they got him back in the building and they came out to the car. And uh, the partner of my friend said to him, did help me out here. Did the possible future president of the United States just offer to carry our machine guns into the hotel? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Apparently so. Apparently Apparently so. so, Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I actually, just before, just as an aside here, I always thought that Michelle Obama did a good job as first lady. I mean, it certainly don't agree with her politics, but I think she handled the, she handled the office. Well, it was clear that she didn't like, you know, she didn't like being put in that position. Wasn't her favorite thing to do. Uh, but for eight years, I think she she pulled it off with some panache and um, and very rarely uh, crossed any lines in terms of, you know, except for campaigning for her husband, which, of course, you got to do. I mean, <laughs> as a spouse, you got to do that. But yeah. I mean, otherwise, she stayed out of she stayed out of policy. She stayed out of electoral politics um, uh, or excuse me, um, uh, congressional politics, that sort of thing. And I I, I always felt that. Um, I I know why some on you know some on the right don't don't like Michelle Obama, but I, I always had a lot of respect for the way she pulled that office off. So yeah, you know, kudos to her for that. Um, but I mean, to get back to Biden being in Ukraine, my big concern about that, other than the safety issues and his own health issues, which you know are becoming a lot more apparent as we go along here, Andrew, is just the fact that he's. Almost like Donald Trump, I would have the same problem with Donald Trump. I don't know what he'd say when he's there. That's right. That's and, right. And I mean, and, and neither does he. It. Right. Neither, neither does he. he. Well, neither does Trump either. And you can't have that kind of undisciplined performance in the middle of a war zone. And that, to me, is a good reason for Biden not to be there. It's a good reason for Trump not to be there too. Um, you know, if you had somebody like Ron DeSantis in there or Mike Pompeo, it would be much, much, much more different. Or you know, for that matter. Uh, I don't know who I'd pick on the Democrat side, but, uh, you know, if I was to pick somebody who had been running for president in, in the previous cycle, if you'd had a um, Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I'd probably worry about Tulsi Gabbard, too. But I mean, Pete Buttigieg would probably stick to a, stri- a script, right? I mean, I think you could rely on Pete Buttigieg to stick to a script because that's probably the only way he, he'd, he'd do it anyway. Um, and I'm again, I'm not endorsing Pete Buttigieg at all. I'm just saying that. In those types of situations, you really need to know what you're doing. You have to be very, very careful while you're there. And Boris Johnson has a reputation of being a little bit garrulous and a little bit um, like a bull in a china shop, too. But he's actually a lot more disciplined, I think, than people give him credit for. And, you know, if you listen on on C-SPAN, if you listen to his uh, speech to Parliament about Ukraine, there have been a couple of them that were very Churchillian. and quite inspirational. And that was the main point of my column was that other allies like um, uh, the Secretary General of NATO and Boris Johnson uh, and a couple of others have uh, are trying to fill the leadership vacuum of Biden in terms of the allies in Europe. Uh, you know, during a war like this and every weekend, reliably, Biden is absent. And uh, I guess he needs it for medicine or physical rest or whatever he does on the weekends besides go to church. But uh, it would be nice to have a presidential presence, uh, a courageous presidential presence that you could admire at home, as opposed to just looking to foreign for us, looking to foreign leaders to provide the role models and examples. Yeah, I know. I think that that's a that's a really good point. And again, go read Andrew uh, Malcolm's fabulous VIP column uh, on this very topic at redstate.com. I, I want to move on to Biden leadership in another context, which is the polls that came out over this weekend. I wrote about it um, early Monday morning, um, CBS and ABC polls, right? I mean, these are not unfriendly polling series to, to Democrats, I think, to say the least. And yeah. yet in both, I mean, Biden is, is doing absolutely awful in both of these. It, you can look at the overall job approval. He think he's, he's definitely at the lowest point in the CBS series, 41%. 
um, which I think is overstated. I think he's also at the lowest overall job approval in the ABC series. But I mean, in both of these, you take a look at the issue um, approval ratings, right? His uh, performance on the economy, his, uh, his performance on inflation. He is over 60%, 60% or over disapproval <laughs> on almost yeah. all of these issues. He was above water on COVID um, in the ABC poll, and that might end up uh, dissipating too, because they're about ready to roll out another extension of the airline mask mandate. Ashish Jha was on today on Monday morning. time. Oh yeah, we might extend that. Yeah. That that's feel free to burn down the democratic party in the midterms. But, but on that note, Andrew, the other part of the ABC poll that I think is amazingly bad, not for Biden, but for his party is the enthusiasm gap. You've got 55% of Republican respondents to this saying they're very enthusiastic about voting in the midterms and only 35% of Democrats who responded to this. That's a 20-point enthusiasm gap. I'm not even sure I've ever seen it that wide before. It's pretty wide, uh, and it's kind of the reverse of of the last one where, uh, what was it, 70%, I think 70% of uh, Biden voters in uh, for the last uh, presidential election said that they were actually voting against Trump, not for Biden. Right. So he's, he's, he's had weak internal support all along. And, and, and this is what you get. A lot of people, including myself, I must admit, voted uh, uh, for Jimmy Carter in 50, in 76. Um, I was very angry at Ford over the Nixon pardon. And uh, that's what happens when you vote against a president, an incumbent president, is the challenger doesn't get fully examined by the voters. They just right. say, well, anybody but X. And um, and we ended up with Jimmy Carter, who until now was the, the, the perfect example of a modern major disaster as uh, a POTUS. Yeah, it took him three years to get to that point too. It only took it only took Joe Biden six months or seven months. Yeah, yeah. right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, Afghanistan. I mean that. Yeah, that's that what was, I'm talking about. Yeah, that, that's just a disaster. That was such a debacle, um, and and at at his direct orders. I mean, countermanding the the generals. Well, we have to keep 2,500 troops in. Kabul. Nope. Everybody's out. So everybody's out. Then they had to send 6,000 back in uh, and 13 of them died. It's. And he lied yeah. about that. We'd stick around to the, all the Americans oh, got out yeah. and then he, and then yeah. he bailed out, you know, and, there's, and they're still not there. They're still, and they're not, still out. not out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I don't, you know, as a media person, I don't know, you can't do it every day, but uh, they, they tend to drop these awkward issues. They tried to drop Benghazi, but the Republicans said the House. Now, nothing ended up getting done um, after Benghazi, which I, I'm sorry, that's, a, that's become a personal issue, unfortunately, uh, yeah. uh, that betrayal. But um, that was another Democrat. And nobody's asked, where, where was Obama for those 16 hours? He just disappeared, poof, from five at night. Until the next morning when he promised swift justice, which we never got. But that was all because of a video. Um, I, I just and then, oh, and I talk about promising or talk about punishing malpractice. Uh, Susan Rice, who went on every Sunday show, promising that it was uh, assuring everybody that uh, Benghazi was because of that anti-Muslim video. Right. Uh, she's now head of <laughs> head of Biden's domestic policy council. So you fail upward with that crowd. Yeah. Yeah. Beltway in general, you kind of tend to fail upward. But yeah, they take care of each other. Yeah. Um, they they really do. Bipart- that's bipartisan. That's for sure. Yep. One last one last topic. And we can just hit this one briefly before we get to the real the real, the, re- the, the real, real reason meat. for Tuesday, yeah. The real, the real meat of our Tuesday podcast, jokes of the week. But before we get there, um, on Friday, the Huffington Post reported, and and you know, hold on for hold on to your socks here. Did you know that Black Lives Matter was kind of a racket? <laughs> no, I retweeted your your post uh, uh, today, and uh, 
Imagine that. It's hard to believe with all the mansions that they bought. I, yeah, I, you know, I and I, I mean, I don't, I'm not even really knocking the Huffington Post because actually, this the, uh, Stephen Crockett wrote this, and it's actually a very good piece. And he and he even says one of the reasons why uh, critics haven't uh, been able to gather much ground is because Black Lives Matter just labels anybody who's got a criticism as a racist, right? Yeah. Well, well, you are. <laughs> That's at the Huffington Post or HuffPo. I, they they call themselves HuffPo now. That's at the HuffPo, which is kind of amazing, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you are, Ed. Oh, so you are. are you. All right, Statler. What? No, no, wait a minute. I, I'm Statler. You're Waldorf. All right, Waldorf. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not the bald one, whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, we should be on a, on a, on a Muppet show. That, they were so fun. They were so fun. I, you know, I actually, I think that, the, I think that would actually be, um, it would actually almost be one of my uh, my crowning achievements if I got my if I got onto the Muppet Show. Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> I love the Muppets. Oh, I do. I just love. I absolutely love. You know, I I took. I was writing about uh, Sesame Street uh, uh, for the anniversary. It was the fifth or sixth anniversary. It was the first year that a, a Sesame Street preschoolers got the kindergarten, and so I did a national roundup for the New York Times on. Has there been any impact? And uh, my favorite anecdote was the teacher who said, uh, who was writing the alphabet. And the, first of all, all the kindergartners knew the alphabet already. So that blew their first few days of lessons. But she said, <coughs> she wrote the letter V on the blackboard and the entire class chanted, Venus, victory, vulture, <laughs> just <coughs> straight out of Sesame Street. Anyway, <clears throat> excuse me, I took my uh, youngest son, who I guess would have been three, maybe four, uh, to a taping of Sesame Street. And I was kind of in awe, you know, watching. There were all the main characters, and, and we were right behind the cameras um, and on the west side there in New York. And uh, I'm watching the show, and Snuffleupagus was there, and Oscar and everybody. It was really cool. And and I looked down at my little son, and he was standing in the same place I was, but he was looking up at the ceiling. And I looked up; he was watching a monitor, because yeah. Ses Sesame Street reality for him was on a screen, right. and the stuff going on over here in front of the cameras that was something else. He didn't care about that. So we went upstairs afterwards. We went upstairs, and we met. Um, oh, now I Frank Oz who, uh, among other things, he's been a movie director since, but among other yep. things, he, he was the Cookie Monster. So he said, wait here a minute. And he went in the closet and he came out with the Cookie Monster. And my son's jaw dropped. And he said, oh, hello, little boy. What's your name? And, the, and he says, uh, Christopher. And he says, Christopher, do you like cookies? And my son was so taken back, he said, no. <laughs> 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 and the cookie monster tickled the heck out of him. Uh, I always remember, so I, I still hold that against him. It's, you don't like your mom's cookies? What's that? <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so that's become an integral part. I, and that was the power of Sesame Street, uh, just to make a point, is that it, like a lot of the Disney movies, it appeals to adults as well as children. Right. So you get you get adults watching, and if adults are watching, then the children pay much better attention. Oh yeah. And and so uh, I learned the alphabet that way too. Through Sesame Street? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, you're you're only 38. Maybe you're That's 39. True. Actually, yeah, I've lost yeah. track. Yeah. So yeah, so it's yeah. entirely possible. Um, it's also entirely possible that we've come to the point where we have to get to the jokes of the week, Andrew. So uh, let's see. We have these are replays. Uh, Conan replays as fashion designer uh, Michelle Kors has launched a campaign to stop world hunger. His first step: stop hiring supermodels. <laughs> yeah exactly and uh jay leno said uh, the white house chef personalizes the meals when president obama and vice president biden have their weekly lunch together biden's lunch always comes with a toy <laughs> <laughs> i love this um 
And uh, uh, Seth Myers is a Twitter employee, uh, live tweeted her baby's birth over the weekend with the hashtag in labor. The woman was forced to stop tweeting after she crushed the phone with her bare hands. <laughs> I could see that happening. I could see, I could that, see that. I yeah, could see I that. I could definitely yeah. see that. All right. Well, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing. Women in labor, they finally understand what it's like for a man to have a cold. <laughs> oh, we're going to get letters on that one, Andrew. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> well, it's terrible. I just had one on the weekend. It was awful. Oh, man. Anyway, that was a joke, folks. That was a joke. Uh, yeah, it was a joke. It was completely a joke. Sort of true, but completely a joke. Anyway, if you want to read some of what Andrew has to say seriously, then you need to follow him on Twitter. He is the prince of Twitter at A.H. Malcolm. He's the regent of redstate.com, writing uh, VIP and also in the open columns over at redstate.com. Andrew Malcolm, thanks so much for being with us, and we'll talk to you again next week, sir. Okay, see ya. Thanks, everybody. See ya, Ed. See you later, and we'll be back with more from the Ed Morrissey Show podcast right after this. Thanks for watching the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. If you like what you've seen, be sure to subscribe at the channels that you watched on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We love subscribers. More importantly, it lets everybody know that we're out there. So again, thank you for watching. Be sure to subscribe.